pray for one another, think through ministry together, encourage one another. And so I am very grateful to this church for providing us with the space to gather every six weeks and thankful to your pastor for bringing us together to encourage one another. In the process of meeting all those times at this church, I've also had the privilege then to get to know other elders at Covenant Life as well as your staff and even some of your members have come to preach uh, at Northwood. Uh, and in that process, I have been so encouraged to see your shared commitment to treasure Jesus above all else. Uh, clearly, you are a church that loves Christ and wants Christ to be exalted. And, and the second thing I'm encouraged by is as I hear you share stories, I'm encouraged by how intentionally you're pursuing relationship with one another so that through your life together, you're bringing glory to Jesus and the way you care for one another and the way you love one another. And so uh, I am grateful for this gospel ministry here in South Tampa, uh, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to encourage you today to continue in your faithfulness to Jesus uh, through his word. And today I have the privilege of doing that by joining you in your Advent series that has been entitled In His Own Words. And as Justin pointed out last week, a Christmas confronts us with a question. This season where we celebrate the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, we're confronted with the question of why did Jesus come in the first place? Why was he born as a baby? And there's maybe no better place to look than Jesus' own words. Throughout the Gospels, again and again, Jesus says things like, I came that I was born for this. I came into the world for this purpose. All getting at that question, why did Jesus come? And this week, as we consider Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, we'll see a second reason why Jesus came. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the reason for Jesus entering into the world we're considering this week is incredibly significant for one of the phenomenons we're encountering in recent years, at least in the church in America. In Michael Kruger's recently released book, Bully Pulpit, he points out that the last decade has witnessed a rising number of churches wrecked by spiritual abuse. Harsh, heavy-handed, domineering behavior from those in a position of spiritual authority. And high-profile cases that many of us have seen are only a small portion of the problem. Behind the scenes, there are many more cases of spiritual abuse that we will never hear of. And Kruger's diagnosis of part of the problem is that many churches and Christians are looking for the wrong kind of leaders. Instead of searching for leaders marked by godliness, Christian maturity, faithfulness to God's word, instead, churches long for visionary leaders, great orators, and creative entrepreneurs. Now, on the Lord's kindness, I know that you have pastors and elders who are eager to serve this church, which is a blessing to you and for you. And yet the truth is, just because you have servant leaders now does not mean that you as a church are immune from the danger of one day having abusive, domineering leaders. Why? Well, because the leaders we have are always downstream from the values we cultivate. And so the path towards abusive leadership actually begins with you uh, valuing the charisma and competency of your current faithful leaders more than their humility. 
And once you value their gifting more than their character, you're on the path to begin to value gifting more than character and on the path to then choose and tolerate domineering, abusive pastors who produce the visible results that many of us want to see in our church, uh, but is just an apparent fruitfulness, not a real one. But the problem is not just that churches have come to tolerate abusive leaders or even that leaders misuse their spiritual authority and uh, make excuses for their unchristian character. The real problem is a more basic human problem. By nature, we all love and seek our own glory rather than the glory of Jesus. And this is what sets leaders down a path to do whatever it takes to make a name for themselves. This is what sets churches down a path to tolerate abusive leaders who would make their church look good. And if we're being honest with ourselves beyond church leadership and church ministry, many of us would not be willing to be relegated to the invisible, tedious, unseen, behind-the-scenes work that service often calls for. All of us have a natural inclination to live for our own glory, and as a result, we are unwilling to or we're reluctant to serve others unless there's something in it for ourselves. But this is not the, the way it's supposed to be among Jesus' followers. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, we're going to watch Jesus address the glory hunger in his own disciples, the men who had been with him for three years watching him serve. And as we do that, we'll see that this text is tailored to teach us that we should serve everyone because Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And we'll see that by asking three questions. Question one, why don't we serve? Answer, we seek our own glory and are indignant when others beat us to the punch. Question two, what's the solution? Answer, we pursue greatness through service to all. And question three, why should we and why can we pursue greatness through service? Because Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we confess that apart from your spirit working through your word, that we might see what's written, we might hear what's written, but we won't understand or perceive it. So we ask that your spirit would work through your word today to help our hearts receive your word in faith. And we ask in particular as we consider our Savior who served us, and you would use our time together to produce a longing in us to serve others because of how you have served us. And in doing that, Lord, we ask that you would help us then to live for the glory of Jesus and him alone. Help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted in this place and we would go from here eager to serve him and to serve others for his glory. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. And if you'd like to follow along in one of the ESV Pew Bibles, uh, you can find Mark chapter 10, verse 35 on page 795, I think. You'll be looking for a big, bold 10, that's a chapter, and then you'll be looking for a small number 35, that's a verse 
And as uh, folks are looking for it, if you've already found it, would you just take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word? Uh, You know the burdens and distractions you've brought in this morning. Uh, Surrender them to the Lord and ask him to speak the word you need to hear this morning. In verses 35 through 41, we find the answer to question one. So question one, why don't we serve? Answer, because we seek our own glory and are indignant when others beat us to the punch. Now, just prior to these verses, we learn that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and has just told his disciples that he will be handed over to the Gentiles and condemned to die on a cross. So it's in this context then, that James and John come to him in verse 35 and make a blanket request that Jesus give them whatever they ask. They're like sneaky children who would come to their parents asking for something they know their parents are going to say no to, but trying to be vague enough about the crest that maybe their parents might just say yes. But Jesus sees right through this strategy and immediately asks them, in verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? And so James and John respond in verse 37 that they want to be granted to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, to understand the request of James and John, we need to understand two things. What it means to sit at a person's right hand as well as what Jesus had already promised his disciples. First, to be seated at someone's right hand implied authority. It's the greatest place of honor and authority of someone. One scholar points out this is often the position of the son or the heir or the chief advisor. And that means that in this context, the left hand is the second greatest place of authority. And so what James and John are asking for is the greatest places of honor and authority in Jesus's kingdom. And they're doing this right after Jesus has just announced he's going to die. Talk about poor timing. They're they're not getting it. But second, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has already promised all 12 disciples that they will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In other words, Jesus has already promised the 12 that they will receive honor, they will receive authority, which means James and John are not content with what Jesus has already promised. They want more glory for themselves. They want the best positions of honor and authority but they do not understand what they're asking for. They still don't get that in Jesus' kingdom, glory follows suffering. Suffering first, glory later. And so Jesus tells them in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? James and John don't know what they're asking because they don't know what kind of suffering Jesus will experience before he enters his glory. And so first, Jesus will drink a cup. And the scriptures, a cup sometimes refers to the blessings we experience as a result of God's grace and favor towards us. But more often, a cup refers to the suffering we'll experience as a result of God's divine judgment. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will plead with his heavenly Father to have this cup removed from him because he knows the suffering that will come upon him because of God's divine judgment. But he knows he'll have to drink this cup in order to save people 
to save us from our rebellion against his holy father. He will have to drink the cup of God's divine judgment. And second, Jesus says he will soon experience a baptism, which in this context depicts the suffering and death that he'll be plunged into. And eventually, baptism will become the symbol that depicts our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. But here, we find in the scriptures the first reference of baptism describing suffering and death, and it refers to the death that Jesus will have to die on our behalf. And so when Jesus asks, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism which I'm being baptized? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. The disciples cannot drink this cup. They cannot receive this baptism. There is no way they can satisfy God's wrath on behalf of our sins because they deserve God's wrath themselves. And yet, the disciples, James and John, and their eagerness to get this position of glory and honor say, we are able. And while they respond wrongly, Jesus does affirm they will, in fact, drink the cup that he's drinking. They will receive his baptism. But as the Gospel Transformation Bible points out, since Jesus is the first to take the cup of judgment, the cup and baptism his disciples and all his followers receive is different. They, we, will suffer like Jesus. Yet our suffering is different than Jesus' suffering. Because Jesus has already taken the cup of judgment, our judgment is converted into a purifying fire. On account of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, who drank the cup and went through this baptism first, the judgment of his followers has been averted. Now our suffering cannot mean we're being judged. I hope you sense the good news in this if you are in Christ. Whatever suffering, whatever loss, whatever pain you're going through right now, there is one thing your suffering can never be. Your suffering cannot be a result of God's judgment. Your suffering might be a consequence of your sin. Your suffering may be evidence of the discipline of God to draw near those he loves. Your suffering may be for your purification, that he would give you greater joy in him or greater maturity. The one thing, if you have trusted in Christ, that your suffering can never be a sign of is God's displeasure is God's judgment. Jesus has drunk that cup on your behalf. And there is nothing left for you to drink. Now the important thing though for us to really pay attention to here is the reaction of the other 10 disciples as they overhear this interaction between Jesus, James, and John. Verse 41 tells us that when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now this is not the righteous indignation of the disciples who said, James and John, didn't you just hear Jesus talking about him about to die? But we need to be focused on treasuring every moment we have with him, not worrying about who's going to get the right place in his kingdom. No, this is the indignation of someone who's been beaten to the punch. Someone else came up with a good idea first. Someone else asked about the job opening you wanted, and now they have the job you wanted. The ten are indignant because they wanted these places of honor. But James and John had the courage and foolishness to ask Jesus first. And this is what's wrong with not just the disciples, but all of us. 
This is why we don't serve. Like James and John, we are so preoccupied with our own glory, we can't bother to serve others. Like the ten, we are so preoccupied with worrying whether someone else will beat us to the thing we long for that we don't even notice other people's needs. And when someone does get the promotion we hoped for, the recognition we desired, the attention we wanted, we become angry. I'm sure some of you are thinking to yourself right now, that's not me. I really don't like to be in the spotlight. I love to serve behind the scenes in unnoticed ways. I'd be mortified, actually, if anyone ever recognized me. But I want to ask you this. What if someone else got the credit for your work? Not that you just weren't recognized, but someone else was observed, and the things you did, they got credit for. If you're anything like me, you'd be mad. You'd be angry, or to use the language of Mark, you would be indignant. But if that's the case, we aren't really serving others for their sake. We're serving them for our sake. This is like the story Tim Keller tells of the king, a gardener, and a nobleman. Once upon a time in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot in his garden. Now this man loved his king, and so he came and presented the carrot to the king, saying, this is the best carrot, or the best carrot my garden will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. Now the king discerned the gardener's heart of love and devotion and saw that he wanted nothing in return. And this moved the king, and so he gave the gardener greater lands so that he could grow more carrots. And the man went away rejoicing. Now, a nobleman in the court overheard this conversation and thought, if the king will give such a great gift for such a small gift, what will he give in return for something even greater? And so the next day, the nobleman brought the king a fine horse, saying, this is my best horse that my stables will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. But the king discerned the nobleman's heart. And in response, he just received the horse and dismissed the giver. And when the king saw the look of confusion on the nobleman's face, he said this, The garden's gift was a gift, indeed a gift out of love for me, but you're just trying to make a profit. The gardener gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. And when we serve for the recognition of others, we are not really serving others. We are merely serving ourselves. We are not giving others our service, we're giving ourselves our service. And this is why serving others is so hard. By nature, we're so preoccupied with our own glory that we either don't notice the needs of others or don't want to serve the needs of others. And we only do so then when it will bring us the glory we seek for ourselves. And we know that's the reason we're serving others when we become angry if we don't get the credit we think we deserve. And so let me ask you again. Are you serving others? If you are, what's your motivation? How do you feel if you don't get the credit? The reason we don't serve or don't serve rightly is because we seek our own glory and are indignant when others beat us to the punch. So is it any wonder then that we find abusive leaders and domineering leaders in churches? Our natural bend as humans is to seek our own glory rather than the glory of Jesus. And our natural bend then as churches 
is for our church to look impressive. And if we can find a leader whose charisma and competency will lead our church to growth and glory, it's only natural for us to overlook their character and even begin to defend their poor character because of the results they produce. So what's the solution? Well, we find that in verse 42 through 44. So question two, what's the solution to our glory hunger? The answer, we need a paradigm shift. But we don't pursue greatness for greatness sake. Instead, we pursue greatness through service to all. As Jesus responds to the self-seeking motivations of the disciples, he reminds them of how authority is exercised among the Gentiles. In verse 42, Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, when we hear Jesus say that the problem is that their great ones exercise authority, we could understand him to be saying something like, the problem is the fact authority is exercised at all. But one of the principles for interpreting Scripture is we interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. And we know that other Scriptures say God has given authority to a variety of individuals and institutions. God has entrusted authority to the government, to the church, to pastors, to elders, to parents, and on and on we could go down the list of various ways God has entrusted authority to specific people to be exercised. So the problem is not that authority is exercised, but it's the way that authority is exercised. Look again, Jesus says, they lord it over them, meaning they use their authority to make themselves look good. They use their authority to push someone into doing something they don't really want. They're not serving. They're lording it over them. And so instead, Jesus continues on and offers a different paradigm in verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now notice here, Jesus says there is a path to greatness. There is a path to be first, but it's a race to the bottom of the ladder. It comes not through seeking your own glory. It comes not through getting bent out of shape when others get what you want. It comes not through pursuing greatness for greatness' sake. Instead, it comes through service. And not just by serving your superiors so that they recognize your work and help you to get ahead. But notice the text says, by becoming a slave of all. The call here is to treat every person, whether or not they can add to your glory and your reputation, every person you are to treat as if you exist to serve them, not as if they exist to serve you. And this has profound implications then for the Christian life. First, if you're a Christian, this means you are called to serve. You're called to be a slave to all, to everyone. Your very identity as a Christian is not to be a consumer, but a contributor. Not just to come here on a Sunday morning and take what you can get, but rather to contribute to the health and well-being of this church. The life of a Christian is no longer about ourselves, but about others. The world operates out of a paradigm saying, your life for mine, whereas the Christian says, my life for yours. So I'd ask you, can you honestly say, my life for yours? And from what I hear from Justin, the answer on many of your lips should be yes. 
Justin shared with me just last week that you had a party celebrating the various ways this church has served throughout the year. That's an amazing encouragement that so many of you are serving. One of the prevailing paradigms you hear about church ministry is that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Praise be to God, it is not so among you. In fact, Justin told me this morning, and uh, Covenant Kids alone, 80% of the church is serving. An exact opposite of the prevailing paradigm. Covenant Life, you are serving the Lord. Continue in that. Do not grow weary in your service, but recognize every time you serve, you're living out your identity as a Christian. You're living out the fact that Jesus has made you a servant. Now, second, this principle is especially important if God has entrusted authority to you. Whether you're a manager, an employer, a supervisor, or a parent, God has called you to exercise your authority by serving those entrusted to your care. So supervisors, employers, managers, do you seek the good of your employees and your expectations of them and how you speak to them and the work culture you're trying to cultivate? Or do you treat everyone as if they exist to serve you? Parents, when you ask or command things of your children, is the reason for that to make your life easier or because you said so? Or do you ask and command things of your children for their good, for the good of your household? And kids, on the flip side, look up here for just a minute. I recognize that it is very difficult to push pause on whatever you might be doing when your parents ask you to serve. By my experience as a kid and teenager, when my mom would ask me to do something, I'd be stuck in a book. And I wouldn't even hear her oftentimes. I'd be so focused. And yet, part of the call, if you are a Christian, is to serve. And I know that might be difficult for you when your parents ask you to do something, but I would plead with you, if you trust Jesus, be willing to push pause on the things you're doing when your parents ask you to do something. Honor them and serve your family. This is part of what it means for you to be a Christian. And finally, the most basic and important application of this passage is to leadership in the church. Jesus is, after all, talking to the men who would be the first leaders of the early church, who would exercise authority in the church, and he is calling them to lead by serving. And so if you aspire to lead in the church, start by giving yourself to service. I know many of the men in this church aspire to vocational ministry. If that's what you really desire, right now, give yourself to faithfully serving the church, even if you go unnoticed. A man who aspires to be an elder ought to be serving like an elder long before he's recognized as one. In church, you need to look for men who exemplify these characteristics. Train yourself to value humility and service for the good of the church. One of the great dangers, again, facing our churches is that because of our lust for glory, fame, and influence, that we would become more interested in someone's charisma and competency than we would be in their character. And we can guard ourselves by training ourselves to value humble service more than giftedness. And one concrete way you can do this is by looking for opportunities to encourage your leaders as you see them serving. Look for ways men and women who lead in this church are serving and encourage them. 
Text them, call them, take them out for coffee or lunch, invite them over for dinner, and speak to the specific ways you see God working in and through them in the life of this church. Come into life, give yourself to valuing and encouraging service in those who lead. And to my fellow elders especially, we need to remember that God has given us our role, our authority to serve the church. Remember, he has given us our responsibility for his glory, not our own. One of the primary reasons God has given pastors to the church is to equip the saints until we all attain the unity of faith, knowledge of Jesus, and maturity in Christ. And when we keep this goal in mind, it affects the way we serve. We'll joyfully and patiently bear with people and their struggles. We'll love those who are hard to love. And as Paul writes in Philippians, it's our joy then to remind the church of the same things over and over and over again because we know it's for their good. And yet, when we make our ministry or our leadership about our glory and our reputation, we'll get annoyed by people's struggles. We'll be frustrated with those who are hard to love. And we will become exasperated by having to have the same conversation again. Why? Because under that paradigm, people become the barrier to our glory. And people become the roadblock to our success. They get in the way of the reputation we long for ourselves because we no longer view ourselves as living to serve them, equipping them, helping them to mature in Christ. So fellow elders, remember you exist to serve this church. True greatness comes not through living for yourself, but by living for others. And if I'm honest with you, this is probably one of the greatest difficulties of not just serving in leadership, but serving and the public role of a primary preaching pastor. In such a public role, it is a constant temptation to live for the glory I could receive from others rather than to live for the glory of Jesus. And so in a very worldly way, what I would love to hear at the end of this service is for many of you to come up to me and say, Mitch, you are a great preacher. That is the carnal desire in my heart because I want to be thought of in good terms. I want my own glory And while it is good and right for you to want to encourage Justin and your other elders and anyone who preaches in this pulpit, that's not actually the kind of encouragement we need because it's about us rather than about Jesus. And the danger of longing for the affirmation of my giftedness is that I would make my preaching about me rather than Jesus. And so if Justin is anything like me, this is one way you as a church can serve him as well as any who serve in the spotlight. You can serve them by encouraging them appropriately. Don't make your encouragement all about how gifted they are, but instead make it about how God is at work through them, doing things that God alone could do, regardless of how gifted they are. But second and more importantly, give yourself to praying. One of the great ways you can serve every single day is by praying. Pray that God would give your leaders a heart consumed and awed by Jesus, a heart that is desiring to serve Jesus for his glory and not their own. Pray that the Holy Spirit would guard them from pride and selfishness and would empower them to serve you joyfully because this is what God desires for them and for you. So the solution to our desire to seek our own glory and 
being indignant when others beat us to the punch, is to pursue greatness through service to all. So give yourself to service. Encourage service in your leaders and pray that they would be marked by service. But if you've been paying close attention, you notice the problem I mentioned is a heart problem. We desire the wrong things. We love our glory more than the glory of Jesus. But the solution I've just proposed is a behavioral solution. Give yourself to serving others. And so the question I hope you're asking then is what can actually change the desire of my heart so that instead of producing greatness for my sake, we can pursue greatness through service to all? Which brings us then to our final question. Why should we and why can we pursue greatness through service? Look with me at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So why should we and why can we pursue greatness through service? We find two answers. First, why should we? Because Jesus came to serve. In verse 45, Jesus begins stating, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This word for is a ground for Jesus' exhortation. In other words, Jesus is giving us a reason to do what he's just said. Jesus came to serve. He's our example. That's why we ought to serve others. Yet for us to grasp the magnitude of this example, we need to understand what Jesus' self-appointed title, the Son of Man, means in this context. The language of Son of Man comes from a variety of places in Scripture, but especially significant is Daniel chapter 7. There, Daniel, seeing a vision, writes this, There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Daniel, the Son of Man, is deserving of all glory because his dominion is an everlasting one. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so this Son of Man is deserving of all people, all nations, all languages serving him. And yet, in a surprising twist, Jesus says, the Son of Man, the one who's entitled to everyone serving him, came not to be served, but to serve. The person who is most deserving of being served, the person to whom all glory and honor are owed, he came not to be served, but to serve. One reason we ought to serve others then is because Jesus, the one who deserved all the glory, who deserves all the service that people should give him, he didn't hold on to his glory, but instead he emptied himself and came as a servant. So we serve others because this is the example Jesus set for us. And although his example gives us a sufficient reason to serve others, it doesn't explain why we can actually pursue greatness through service to all. In fact, if Jesus were merely our example, I think we'd all be crushed as we begin to look to the ways he perfectly served others and all the ways we continue to fall short of that. But Jesus is not just our example. He's also our substitute and savior. He did not just generally serve others as an example to us. He served us 
And he did so, as Mark says, by giving his life as a ransom for many. So why can we serve others? Because Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus says he gave his life as a ransom, he's using a word to describe a payment to release someone from slavery or bondage, which implies that all of us are in bondage or slavery to something. What is that? Well, biblically speaking, the answer is sin. Apart from Christ, we are not able to please God. We are not able to serve others for their sake. We will always serve others for our sake. We are enslaved to our desire for our own glory. And so we need to be set free from our hunger for self-glory. Now, the problem, according to Psalm 49, is this. No man can ransom another. No man can give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. In other words... The ransom we owe to be free from our bondage is too great a price for us ever to pay by our own effort, by our money, or even by our lives. There is nothing we can do to free ourselves from this bondage. Further, no mere man could pay a ransom for another person because they're enslaved themselves. But Jesus is no mere man. He is the son of man, the perfect representative of all humanity who lived a perfect life of service in submission to God. And he is not just the son of man, but the son of God, deserving of glory, honor, and an everlasting kingdom that can never be shaken. And when Jesus then gave his life on the cross for us, the ransom he paid was not just sufficient for one man, but as the text says, for many. And we know his payment was enough because Jesus didn't stay dead. But three days later, he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death so that any who repent of their sin and trust in him can be free, free from their self-idolatry, free from the hunger for self-glory, free from the desire to serve ourselves at the expense of others, and free to serve others. And then he ascended to the right hand of God. He is now at the highest position of honor and glory. And what is Jesus doing now in the highest position of glory and honor? He's continuing to serve. He serves as our high priest and advocate, interceding on our behalf when we continue to struggle in service. Jesus is one who served us again and again and again, most especially by giving his life for us on the cross. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to make this as plain as possible to you. According to the scriptures, you are in bondage to sin. And the scriptures tell us that you are not free to serve others for their own sake. And not just that, but before God, your sin and your selfishness deserve to be punished for all eternity. But Jesus came to serve and give his life as a ransom for you. So that if you would turn from your sin and trust in him, you could be free. You could be forgiven. If you will trust in his life, death, and resurrection, you will finally be able to live out what God created you for. To serve others for his glory and worship of him. You'll become a slave to God, and yet you'll be free for the first time ever to live as God created you to live. 
So I plead with you, don't delay considering this decision. I recognize it as a significant decision to make. And so if you need time to think it through, take the time. But don't delay thinking about it. Instead, consider what Jesus has done for you. He came to serve you. And he did so by giving his life as a ransom for you. So consider coming to Jesus to find life and freedom. And if you want to learn more about what that looks like, you can come talk with me after the service, uh, any of your pastors or elders here, and I'm sure any of the members here would love to rearrange their schedules to tell you more about how you can find life and freedom in Jesus. But if you're a Christian, I want you to recognize Jesus is not just your example to follow, but he is your substitute and savior. He is your power. He is your ransom. And so you are able to serve others for their own sake because this is what Jesus did for you. And it's by trusting in his life, death, and resurrection that by his grace, through the power of the Spirit, he actually changes your desires. He gives you a new heart so that you actually want to serve others for their own sake. And so if you're finding it difficult to serve others, let me encourage you, go back to the cross. Meditate on what Jesus has done for you, laying down his life for you. Because it's by meditating on this and truly believing this that you'll find the power to serve others as Jesus served you. And on Sundays like this one, where we come to the Lord's table together, this is precisely what we do in communion. We eat the bread because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. We drink the cup of the new covenant in his blood because he drank the cup of wrath when he poured out his blood for us. And as a result of what Jesus has done, not only have we been free, not only have we been forgiven, not only have we been united to Christ, but we have been united to one another. Look around. The people in this room, by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you have been freed to serve each other. That is what Jesus accomplished for you. So let's pray now together that the Holy Spirit would empower us to serve others as we remember and celebrate Jesus who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many.